FASWA is a podcast about Bigfoot. It's recorded for the skeptics, the believers, the knowers, and those who just have a casual interest in the subject. For more information, visit saswhat.com. This is Saswa, a podcast about Bigfoot. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Seth Breedlove, and I'm joined tonight by my pal, Mark Matsky. Greetings from Southeast Ohio, where Bigfoot can just be himself. Mm-hmm. That's true. And we are back from the Ohio Bigfoot Conference that uh, recently took place at Salt Fork State Park here in Ohio, also known as Bigfoot Mecca. Um Salt Fork State Park, supposedly the home of thousands of Bigfoots that are seen on a, on a daily basis by those wandering through the woods in search of such a thing. Yeah. You can just step out on your balcony at the lodge and they, you know, sort of approach meekly it's, yeah, from it's the like, forest. It's like Animal Kingdom. Um, it's like the <laughs> Animal Kingdom Lodge at Disney World. You, right. you wake up and instead of giraffes outside your window, there's a Sasquatch. <laughs> Hanging from a tree, <laughs> holding a fish. Yeah, yeah peace offering. Peace offering. Yep, gifting. He's gifting you. Mm-hmm. Um, so no the people go. <laughs> the conference was, I think, a, a big success for for everyone involved. Um, I'm still recuperating, which you may be able to tell throughout this this episode. This has been a crazy busy week for me, um, but it was uh, a very exciting time. And we got to premiere Minerva Monster there, and uh, I thought the response was pretty, pretty solid. Mark did uh, a recap episode of Monsterland Ohio with his son Andy. That is probably going to be the best place for you to get any kind of recap of the of the conference. I think um, because basically what we did with Sasquatch last week was just put in some audio from a couple interviews and then do the Q&A from Minerva Monster. There really wasn't much more to it, whereas Mark really went in-depth on the entire event with Andy. So, And they had guests and stuff, so you'll want to check that out. Um, where did they find that? You can find that at monsterlandohioradio.podomatic.com, also on iTunes. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, so we wanted to fill... F- fill up we wanted to finish up the um small town monsters month we have two episodes left we're recording them both back to back so we did get some letters uh actually one letter uh from adam duggan and this actually came dugan duggan it's hard to say he'll have to i'm sure he'll fill me in on that um yeah do you have that letter in front of you by any chance i do not no i don't okay give me a second while i sneeze okay it's coming allergy season um okay so adam says seth and mark i was really excited when i heard you were going to theme the month of may a small town monsters month on sasquatch i always find the lesser known stories and encounters to be some of the most interesting many of the tales hold a certain level of nostalgia and even community pride that the more mainstream monster legends cannot replicate 
The thought of small town monsters makes me think of driving into town past an old crooked road sign that instead of bragging on the local football team for state championship seasons for yesteryear reads, welcome to home of the blank monster. Something about that is creepy in a retro old school Americana kind of way. That being said, I'd love it if you guys could talk about the Flintville monster case of southeastern Tennessee. The encounters share many of the traits of other small-town monster lore throughout the country. The incidents take place over several years, are witnessed by prominent community members, and all seem to point to Sasquatch as the creature being seen. The Flintville monster tale has everything from window-smashing to child-chasing and just about everything in between. I've included a link to a newspaper story as well as a BFRO sighting from the same general area that the witnesses seem to think could be related to the Flintville case. Then he gives us a couple links... Thanks for the awesome podcast. You guys are great. Adam. Um, Adam ha- has a blog, Search the Woods. Uh, I think it's WordPress. Searchthewoods.wordpress.com, maybe. I don't know how WordPress words their URLs. But uh, Adam was actually one of the first people, if not the first people, to review my movie. So that's cool of him. Um, and I wanted to read up on this Flintville case because one of the mm-hmm. first conversations I had with Adam, he actually told me about this, and uh, I'd never heard of it. Had you? No, I hadn't. Okay. So it was pretty fascinating to learn about this fairly aggressive creature. Yeah, and um, I read all I read was what he sent us. Did you read more than that? Or Well, there is some information on BigfootEncounters.com. Okay. I don't know if you took a look at that or not, but I just sent that. Uh, I just read the one that he sent the okay. Bigfoot Encounters uh, yeah. article, which maybe we should read actually because it's pretty cool, or at least kind of briefly talk about this particular case, which is in this article that was on apparently ran in the Augusta, Georgia Chronicle in 1997. So this is not a terribly old case. See, in my head, I was thinking, no, wait, this says 76. So is this... I'm confused. Yeah, no. it, it's, okay, it's an ongoing thing. So that's yep. it. It and started it in 76 and continues. The 80s, it it continues like. into 2003. Oh, really? Okay. I think so was what I saw. Anyway, um, so I don't know how to sum this up. So I'm, I'm actually going to read this because I think it's, it's worth reading. This mm-hmm. was in the Augusta, uh, Georgia Chronicle. Uh, there's a Bigfoot attacking cars and trying to snatch little children in the Tennessee foothills. Exactly what the Flintville monster is or where it came from remains a mystery, but more than two decades of sightings and terrifying encounters have left many people convinced that the creature is not only real, but dangerous as well. Um, That thing's so big, it could easily hurt somebody, complained Ned Sinclair, a farmer. Who knows how many head of lead of our livestock have gone missing because of it so far no one has been hurt by the flintville monster which often leaves behind 16 inch footprints and a foul skunk-like odor but there are those who claim to have had close calls one man said a seven foot tall hairy monster chased him through the woods howling and screeching at him like an ape a woman said she hid on the floorboard when a similar creature attacked her car on at least one occasion a child was nearly kidnapped by a thing with long hairy arms The trouble began in 1976 when a woman told police that a giant hairy monster broke her automobile antenna and then jumped onto the roof of her car and began bouncing up and down. When the woman's story made news, other citizens stepped forth to describe similar encounters. 
Several attacks were reported in the early 1980s, including one by a plumber who said his truck's windshield was smashed by the monster and another by a housewife who said a black, hairy creature chased her inside her house and beat on the door. In 1989, a church pastor complained that something had destroyed the windshield and antenna on his car. This this thing hates antennas. Yeah. This could be just a, a monster that hates radio in general like car radios or something Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. he's sick of the kids with their newfangled music (laughs) you know uh that same week a group of teens reported a large man-like ape loping across the field at the edge of town of all the stories however none can match the nearly tragic drama related by jenny robertson on april 26th mrs robinson four-year-old son gary was playing in the yard when his mother heard him scream when she ran outside to investigate, she became conscious of a foul odor that reminded her of a skunk or dead rats. Then she saw a huge ape-like figure bounding across the yard toward the house. It was seven or eight feet tall, she told investigators, and seemed to be all covered with hair. It reached out its long, hairy arms toward Gary and came within a few inches of him. Seconds before the shaggy beast could grab the child, his terrified mother snatched him up, darted inside the house, and locked the doors. When she got up enough courage to look out the window, she saw a big black shape disappearing into the woods minutes after she reported the incident to police swarms of lawmen and hunters descended on her property armed with shotguns and rifles they resolved to track down and kill the creature throughout the night they combed the woods on the outskirts of town they never found anything but on at least two occasions the creature screamed at them and pelted them with rocks next day hunters found more than 16 found more 16 inch footprints as well as hair blood and mucus uh, the hair. Hmm. hair was scientifically analyzed but could not be identified. No sightings ever been reported since 93. Does that mean the creature has gone away? I doubt it, said Mrs. Robertson. He's probably just hiding for a while. Um, the The best thing about this story is the uh, the men with, with uh, guns hunting the woods, which is something we've talked about on, on the show, I think, since Small Town Monsters, Monsters Month began, which is this recurring theme of posses of men going looking for Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just in that report that you read, that's just about the most aggressive... Bigfoot that I've ever heard of, assuming that it's the same creature that's being reported. I mm-hmm. mean, just the sheer number of car attacks and near-miss kidnappings, it's yeah. striking. Yeah. I mean, something was really wrong <laughs> uh, with somebody. And it's in, in the South. Case. This is a Southern Bigfoot report. So this is like your prototypical angry Southern Bigfoot, which we've talked about as well, which seems to mm-hmm. be a behavior pattern that pops up again and again in these southern deep south cases um like the boggy creek monster and sure and the first thing i thought of was lizard man when it's talking about banging on car hoods and yeah snapping antennas off yeah that's how that whole thing gets started definitely um there's more to this do you have the bfro report he sent in front of you by any chance yeah, you can get that. Can you get into that a little bit? Because he sent these are both sent by Adam. So thanks to Adam for educating us on this. So yeah. Okay, here we go. See, this was two thousand and three, uh, July sixteenth, and it says my niece went out to roll the windows up on my daughter's car when she heard someone hollering at her. She looked toward a field next to the house and seen something white standing there. 
It kept making the noise and spooked her, so she ran back in the house to tell us. Shortly after this, our dog started barking. My daughter's boyfriend took a flashlight out next to the fence to see if he could see anything. He ran in the house to get the gun because he heard some movement. When he returned to the fence, he shined the flashlight toward the woods again. What he saw stunned him for a few seconds. He said it was a huge, white, furry creature. It's spelled fury, but I'm assuming it's furry. He fired the gun, and the creature stumbled and took off running. While all this was taking place, my daughter and niece were standing on the porch and witnessed the whole thing. They seen enough of the creature to describe it as being a huge, white, furry creature on two feet instead of four. They also heard the low, deep grunt my niece had already heard earlier. They also noticed um, breaking of trees as it ran off. No one has been brave enough to go into the woods to see if we could find tracks or traces of hair. Three persons actually seen it, two adults and one child. Um, let's see. A follow-up investigation uh, by BR, BFRO investigator Tony Gerard. Uh, they live on 66 acres, much of it wooded, springs on the property. Several days before the incident, they smelled a very unpleasant odor. They assumed it was an animal carcass, could not find the source of the smell. The daughter related the sighting took place about 30 minutes after the niece had gone outside. She was approximately 35 feet from the creature and her former boyfriend was much closer. The creature was over six feet tall with a very broad body. The creature's face was between a monkey and a human, and its hair was long and coarse like a golden retriever and white in color like an old person's hair. The creature was standing on two legs and ran away on two legs like a human. Uh, re- golden retriever hair. That's another recurring thing. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm picking up on here lately, and um, the white hair. I like I like this white hair thing. Here's something fascinating, and I'm not. Well, I am. I'm kind of jumping away from the Flintville case because we're already okay. like halfway into the show. Um, the everyone talks about the big muddy monster, right? Which is like one of my favorite yeah. small town monster cases. Did you mm-hmm. know that this thing, the big muddy monster, was like a white creature? Yeah, I believe so. The yeah. Murfreesboro, yeah. Yeah, Murfreesboro monster, big muddy, they call yep. it. Yeah. Uh, At least some of them were, were right. white, weren't they? Right. Cre- um, I'm looking at the report that ran in 27th of June, 1973, and it doesn't look like this is the first story about the Murfreesboro monster, and it's definitely not the last, but I can't find anything earlier than the 27th of June, 73. Um but this this case is like oh, again like a prototypical small town monster case, and it's a big deal still. Like the the big muddy monster is still pretty well known, especially mm-hmm. around Murfreesboro. Um, but the, yeah, the physical description of it was he saw something seven to eight feet tall with light hair covered with mud and weighing three hundred to three hundred fifty pounds. The youth told police the figure had a distinct odor of river mud. Miss Ray said what she saw was a gigantic figure of seven to eight feet tall. She also described the figure as covered with dirty white hair and said it was covered with mud. Um, this creature was always seen, like, I guess, just covered in mud from the river. So they right. named it the <clears throat> Big Muddy Monster, not because it was covered in mud, but because the river there is known as the Big Muddy River. Isn't that right? Something like that. It's yeah, like the Big nickname. Muddy River. Yeah, That's Big right. Muddy River. <clears throat> All right. Um, 
the last report I have, and I, I might even have another one somewhere, but the last report I have out of that area is from um, 67, it looks like. So these start in 63 and run up to 60. No, am I saying 60? Yeah. yeah. They start in 73 and run up to 76, <laughs> but I know I've yeah. got some from like the 80s too. The mm-hmm. last one says... Um, uh, I actually really like this story because eventually the big money monster became so popular that there were like parades and stuff where he was featured. <laughs> so it, it, as far as like a town adopting a mascot, yes. the big money monster definitely was ad- eventually adopted by the m- residents of, of Murfreesboro. But the story here that ran in the th- uh, on the 30th of June in 76 says there's something out there or out there. Along the bottoms of the big muddy river, stalking through the swamps, crashing through the forest. A seven or eight foot tall something with long arms and pale fur, the big muddy monster. Laugh if you wish, but young David Taylor isn't. He and two of his friends are the most recent persons to cross paths with the beast, whatever it is. It was just a couple of weeks ago, the third weekend in June, a Saturday evening. We heard it when we were looking for a ball somebody hit at the edge of the, of the woods, David said. We heard stomps and thuds. It was two houses down. What I saw was standing by the woods. It was gray and hairy, and it had big ears. And it had arms that reached down to the ground. I didn't see its legs. It was just standing there looking at us. I'd say it was a good eight feet tall. One of the boys yelled. When Then we were running up the hill, and Rusty turned and saw it go back in the woods, the 11-year-old said. It didn't really run. It just turned and walked off slowly. Ricky saw yellow eyes. Um... There's more to the story, but it's, it's basically mm-hmm. one of the final stories in the that ran in the paper uh, about this creature. And it, it is a really well-written story, by the way. Guy's name is Dennis Montgomery, and he's got a real flair, I have to say. He's, hmm. he's cool. I like this yeah. guy. Um, but the Big Muddy Monster was one of the first monsters I became interested in. And I think it was because the, the name of it is so unique, Big Muddy. Yeah. Um, but if you, I'm not going to go through this entire case, but I really would suggest people look up the Big Muddy Monster case, and and it it was an ongoing thing, and it ran for you know three or four years, five years, something like that, where there were constant sightings, and the town definitely adopted it as their own monster. And another thing about this case that reminds me of uh, Minerva in some cases is, uh, in some ways is the fact of how well detailed it is in terms of names and people, mm-hmm. you know, eyewitnesses that uh, have gone on record as saying that they saw something. Yeah. And you know, this one little part of the bigger picture is this little four-year-old boy named Christian Barrel. He told his parents he saw a big white ghost in the yard. And at first they didn't believe him, but their neighbors saw it too and then told little Christian's parents that, yeah, he did see something. And just, you know, something about kids and Bigfoot in the 1970s really is just fires your imagination. And -hmm. it seems to be a feature of a lot of these small-town reports. Definitely. Yeah, because, like, you know, even with the Minerva case, you had the the Kate and children. And and there's this ongoing thing where they say they're attracted to or fascinated by children so maybe that's why but yeah um 
Yeah, the big muddy. Also, there there was an episode of Monsters and Mysteries in America that I watched, and supposedly Big Muddy, like so many of these monsters, really hated dogs. Like just constantly wringing dogs' necks across the Midwest. Mm-hmm. That's what I hear. Leaving a trail of dog corpses. Um, yeah, in his, <laughs> in his wake. wake. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and what's weird is in the case of Big Muddy, there's one report that came in of a, like a traveling circus or a carnival, mm-hmm. and somebody evidently saw Big Muddy looking at the Shetland ponies, which now makes me wonder what thoughts he was having. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, our, you know, those don't look like dogs, but maybe close enough. That's yeah. Kind of weird. Yeah. Very and creepy. This was also one of those uh, classic, like, 70s accounts of a Bigfoot-type creature where it's a little unusual from what we hear today. Um, the kind of the long arms down to the ground by this kid is, a, a, you know, probably an exaggeration, but it's still unusual to hear something like that. Um, and this was another one of those, like, Momo and Minerva, where it's completely covered in hair like there's almost no discernible features mm-hmm. um which is a 70s thing you know the homeless vagabond bigfoots roaming around yeah not cutting their hair free love yeah free love <laughs> peace man sleeping in ditches yeah, yeah. and it is not bathing um <laughs> do you have anything well um Anything more on on Murfreesboro? I think we can. Uh, oh, yeah. we can move on. Oh, okay. I, uh, unless you do, you want? Did you did you mean you have more? There's one. Yeah, I mean there's more on uh, dogs and campers. Yeah, you know, bring it's that, kind of yeah, just, bring bring that in. Well, there was um, Rend Lake R E N D, which is a very Curious choice, uh, you know. You could get into the name game at this point, you know, Rend Lake, because what uh, what happened was this tent was rent asunder in a campground near Benton, and this is actually in the eighties. This was August nineteen eighty nine. Wow. Uh, gaping holes were left in a tent, and animal blood was left behind at the scene. This ran in the St. Louis Post Dispatch, so fairly wide uh, distribution of newspaper, and. Now, this was sort of a red herring, unfortunately. The, the, it, whoever determined this said that it must have been from dogs, but local residents started speculating about Big Muddy again because, as, as often happens, things had uh, gone quiet for a while. And so this sort of you know, awoke memories in people of what had happened back in the 70s and... Uh, Jerry Nellis is a dog handler. He stated his own theories on the case. Um, he and other witnesses hunted the Big Muddy monster, uh, as he says. He says, reporters and monster hunters, quote-unquote, came from everywhere asking questions about the case, but Nellis maintained that, in my opinion, we were tracking a bear. So that's just a little bit of a, you know, the other stuff that you get into, the alternative explanations and it would but usually when you when you get into that angle of things how does a big white mud streaked creature how how do you see that as a bear instead you know I, that seems like a pretty uh, you know perception wise those the big difference between those 
two things, but yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, where to next? I don't know. What do you have? Well, I have something completely different, and I tripped over this really in researching small town monsters. Something I had never heard before was the curious case of Atosin, Iowa. And Atosin is somewhat near Sioux Falls and Sioux City, Iowa. And back in the 70s, it was no more than about 150 people. And these days, it's far less. It's about 100 less people Hmm. than that. But in September of 1978, Atosin was home to a very strange yet oddly familiar flap of just people going about their regular business and having that be interrupted by a a strange primate-like creature. And it all got started on July 27, 1978. There was a nine-year-old girl by the name of Donette. Hankins, and it was late at night, but she lived only a block away from uh, one of her grandmother's house, so she was going to go out and evidently visit her grandmother. When she went outside, she heard a strange grunting sound and uh, turned around, found herself face to face with this beast, which she would describe as short, hairy, ape-like, with fangs and deep-set eyes. And it was just, you know, like a foot away from her. She got the shock of her life, you know, ran back inside. And this, of course, sort of started uh, uh, kind of a frenzy in the family. Um, That same night then, uh, just about a half hour later, uh, another uh, Hankin, a little girl, uh, rode her bike uptown uh, with two other little girls And on their way uptown, they too saw a similar creature between two buildings while walking downtown. Now, you know, without having any idea of what Atosin, Iowa looks like, when you hear the word downtown, I'm sure it just means like a crossroads where there's a few buildings together. And, uh, but that's where this creature was, was sighted on this first night experience, um, Then, just about three nights later, uh, this was Iowa Don uh, Don Hankins, age 11. This would have been uh, Donette's sister. They, too, saw an ape-like creature with a wide forehead walking between buildings. And this is really the only point at which things get a little bit weird. And what I mean by that is they were, um, you know, going between these buildings looking for this creature, and um, they remember hearing what they thought was a man's voice asking, does anyone know what time it is? And they didn't see any male adult who could have asked that question. And at that very moment, they saw peeking around this garage, uh, a creature with dazzling eyes as big as golf balls, a big head covered with hair, and they bolted. And they never really figured out 
what that voice was about, what that question meant, or who asked it. Fast forwarding just uh, one day, the next day, July 31st, there were a group of boys who were out messing around and I guess uh, chasing a kitten. They chased a cat up a tree. And while they were doing this, they heard a scratching sound coming from some sail barns. They're kind of out on the edge of town. And their attention, you know, left this cat and they heard something in the building. It sounded, they said, like something rubbing up against something else. And so they did what boys would do. They threw a rock into the building. And when the rock cracked against the floor, a face appeared in the window and then disappeared. The boys said it would, was a big, square, black head with a flat nose and broad shoulders. They bolted for home. Uh, one of the boys, as they were running, uh, scared out of their minds, looked back over his shoulder and saw the creature exit uh, the barn and run off. So it, it sort of then, um, as these reports started to be circulated in this small town, uh, then there was another one where there was a woman by the name, this was now in September. So after the initial flap, and that got into uh, some regional newspapers, uh, one of them being, uh, let's see here, um, the Des Moines Sunday Register, and um, what else? The Humboldt, Iowa Independent, and it finally got into the Omaha, Nepa Omaha, Nebraska papers, the Omaha World Herald. But there's a woman by the name of Anna Dodrill. This was September 24th. She was doing her dishes in her house, and she looked up um, just randomly in the window that was right above her sink, and she was looking into the burning red eyes of a big, long-nosed, black-faced, hairy-headed creature uh, staring at her through a window. And as she tells the story, they locked eyes for a long time, like her estimate was three minutes. Hmm. And she just felt, she would later say, it was the first time in my life I couldn't move. You know, she was just paralyzed, frozen with fear, and had this allegedly long stare-down with the creature until finally she was able to scream, and a person who was in the house with her visiting, who had also seen a, a hairy arm reaching around a, a barn corner earlier that day, um, kind of helped her get her wits about her and, and things of that nature. And then there was one more report associated with Atosin, and that was... Um, also in September of 78, a man by the name of Robert Newell IV watched a tall, hairy, hunchback Bigfoot, he says, exploring his farm buildings in the early morning. And he has, he has a really detailed account of what happened. Uh, Robert Newell says that you know, from out of the backyard he heard a deep whining sound. No horse or pig could have made it, he said. He looked out a bedroom window towards the barn located about 35 feet south of the house, illuminated by yard lights. And he saw this creature jump sideways into a manure spreader, got out, got into a grain spreader, and Newell thought that the creature looked like it was searching for food. It then stood up in front of the barn for a short time, walked around a grain silo, 
and then headed south into a cornfield. And he estimated that it was about four minutes that he was observing this creature, um, sort of exploring the barn. He's about six feet tall, black hair, and walked quite fast. Hmm. So the thing that happened then that I thought, it, this comes out of a, uh, a report by a writer named Stephen Klaus. And he says that one of the interesting things that happened in this very small town is that there be, there was a real division that started to develop between people who were quote-unquote believers or those who had perceived a sighting and those who hadn't. And uh, the wife of the Atosan Marshal, Tom Bennett, by the name of Alberta, said it's left a strange feeling in town that there was sort of this unusual pressure on the, what was normally a close-knit community, you know, and they started to think about each other in different ways, and then they, some people handled that by sort of joking about the whole subject. Uh, one guy wore a monkey mask into the post office. Uh, somebody tacked the uh, homemade sign Bigfoot Country to their, you know, little welcome to a Tosin sign at the edge of town. And then you also had uh, the whole hunter deluge. That happens as well. Uh, as far away as Davenport, Iowa, you had trucks full of guys with guns um, coming to hunt a Bigfoot. And there was one woman, this turns up in a couple of Tosin uh, sighting reports and, and uh you know, articles that tell the story of Atosin where one woman complained to the sheriff's office she couldn't cross the street in front of their home because it was so populated with monster hunters and uh, would-be uh, Bigfoot catchers. And all of that is to say that with that backlash, once it got on the papers and hunters started showing up, the residents of Atosin pretty much went into shutdown mode and stop talking about it because they didn't want to be ridiculed. You know, there's a few sort of uh, solid salt-of-the-earth Midwestern types who are quoted in these uh, stories as saying, I know what I saw, and nobody can tell me differently, and they don't care what people think. But by and large, once the story hit the papers and hunters started to show up, they didn't really want to have anything to do with this anymore. It just became inconvenient and weird and it really tested the fabric of this little community hmm. it's it's interesting to think about what the difference is between the size of a community and the way that people would react because of the size of the community would be like uh, like minerva is actually a decent sized small town i mean it's not big or anything but it's it's okay. And and then another thing that would be fascinating to look into is like what the socio and economic reactions are, are you know like what the differences are if there are differences, how that plays into um just how how the town reacts I guess to to these sightings. Yeah, definitely. In a case of Vitosan, I think it's such a small community that one thing that wouldn't have been present is a sense that you can capitalize on this financially. Right. You, you know, nobody's going to have a Bigfoot burger right. in their restaurant because I just don't think it's that type of community. 
So it really is, it did, It seems to me that in this case it just became more of a nuisance than anything else and something that people would rather forget. Whereas in the case of a little small, a little larger community, uh, maybe Minerva being one uh, test case where, you know, maybe it took decades, but now there's more of an embracing of what happened that's going on and a realization that uh, factual, not factual, true or not true, this can be of uh, some benefit to everybody if we um, just remember our history. Um, before we wrap up this episode, I would be remiss if I didn't mention this was our 50th. So episode number 50. Episode 50. Of Sass What? Wow. So halfway to 100. And uh, we're coming up on a year of doing the show. And um, we've hit a lot of milestones here lately, especially in download numbers. So hmm. to anyone who downloads the show and listens, thank you for continuing to support the show. We pretty much rely on our listeners to get the word out about the show. So, yeah, if you listen to the show, spread the word on social media. Join the conversation at facebook.com slash sasswhat. Find us on Twitter by using the hashtag sasswhat. Or Great. you can find me on Twitter at Seth Breeds Love. Mark Matsky is on Twitter at Reverend Matsky. Send your letters to sasswhatmail at gmail.com and leave us a rating and review on iTunes.